open your copy of God's Word to 1 John. I know we finished this book a few weeks ago, verse by verse, going through it, and I took some time last week to kind of go back through some themes, and I want to do that this week as well, uh, but I won't keep doing this. People are now asking me, how long are you going to stay in 1 John? Uh, so, uh, Lord willing, uh, I'm going to let Jonathan preach next week. I'll be here, but he's going to preach. We haven't heard from him in a long time. Uh, and um, then after that, I'll move to 2 John, and after that, 3 John. We'll go ahead and finish the epistles to John, of John uh, before we move on, Lord willing, then to the book of Philippians. So some of you ladies who have been studying that, we're going to take a lot more time and go through that verse by verse um, after we finish John. This morning, I want us to think about the subject of assurance of salvation, assurance of life. You know, if you were in prison and you're on death row, you're considered a lifer in the sense that you'll be there for the rest of your life and then you'll die there. I want us to think about a lifer in a different sense, that we're a lifer because we are anticipating life for eternity with the Lord. The, the folks who are not in that category, they are anticipating death for an eternity. They are experiencing hell for an eternity. You and I who are believers are experiencing life. There seems to be a constant uh, desire by the people of God for assurance of life. And we saw that in one of the passages, but I want to take the whole of 1 John and think about it. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. And John says in that place, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So first of all, notice, I write these things to you who believe. You're believers. If you're a believer in Christ, it's written to you that you may know, the last part of verse 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. There are a lot of people with doubts as to whether or not you have life eternal or not. And I, I want to do what I can to assure you that you have life this morning, that you don't walk out of here with doubts. Assurance is important for our everyday living and uh, where we're headed. My senior year in college, my lung collapsed. I won't go into the story, but the, I, I, I caught a disease from a Wuhan bat, I believe. And I was actually the originator to COVID. You just didn't know it. It started way back when I was in college, and I had been uh, doing a lot of caving and caught a disease by uh, basically smelling in bat poop. And as a result of that, my entire left lung uh, was infected with this disease on the exterior. And the cavity, then I, it, it created uh, pleurisy fluid and pneumonia. And enough fluid was in that cavity that it just collapsed the left lung. So you can imagine if, if you push in the left side, the bodily organs get pushed to the right side. And now all of those are under pressure. And so you've lost half of your ability to breathe plus some more because now there's pressure on the other lung. And I literally could not walk to, to the end of the stage without collapsing and falling. So I could not get out of my bed and make it, say, to a bathroom without just having to lay on the floor and wonder if I was going to have enough breath to live. 
interesting or not, interesting to me was the day that happened to me, or the, the night it happened. By the way, those of you here last week, it happened in the same house where the neon possum was at, okay? So in my bedroom, I collapsed and was calling 911, wondering what has just happened. The next morning, I was to teach the Sunday school class. It was a Saturday night. Guess what my lesson was on within hours? Assurance of salvation. That was my lesson. And here I was laying on the floor wondering whether I was going to heaven or hell. And I literally fell to the floor and said, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. How could I not have assurance of salvation? I was a believer. I was a teacher of the Word of God. I was supposed to know these things. And I've shared with you the word know, K-N-O-W, is found 40 times in the book of 1 John. God wants us to know these things. He wants us to know we have eternal life. Doesn't want us to think it. Doesn't want us just to hope maybe so. He wants us to be able to be in the clutch of life and death flat out on the floor and say, I am confident of this. I am a believer. And if I die tonight, I will be with my Savior in heaven. I'm a lifer. I have eternal life. And I don't have to doubt it. I don't have to wonder about it anymore. If you're still in that place where I was, where you got some doubts, have you done enough? Has something happened sufficiently enough that you definitely have life? I want to remove the doubts. I want you to leave with clear confidence that you have eternal life. So as I've looked back through 1 John, I've looked for those affirmations that are genuine, true about believers who know they have eternal life. And I want to share those with you. I've got eight of them this morning. Maybe that's what they were anticipating. You know, the normal sermon's about three points. Well, I got eight points, okay? So um, hopefully it's going to give you the assurance you need. First of all, a lifer, talking about eternal lifer, confesses Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Look at chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. 1 John 4, 14 and 15 says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, and whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So it's an affirmation. If you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are one of those with eternal life. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. If you confess Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are born again. You are one that is an eternal lifer. Well, how do we do this? We do it openly. We publicly profess Christ is our Lord and Savior. We do it daily. I just want to stop with the word Lord for a minute. Because what we've seen in 1 John is that Lord means more than just a respect of someone over you. It means being submitted to His rule and reign in your life. Do you proclaim Jesus Christ is your Lord? He's your saving Lord, yes. He's the Redeemer. John 14, 6, Jesus says, No one goes to the Father but through me. He is the only way to heaven. He's the only Redeemer. He's the only mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2. But He's Lord. And He's that mediator because He's, he's in charge of heaven and earth. And He's died in our place. So, do you look to Christ to be the one who leads you, guides you, directs you? He's your Lord. In other words... I'm not asking, have you walked an aisle? Have you raised a hand? Have you made a decision for Christ? I'm not asking that. So I'm not asking you to say, well, I confess I have made Jesus my Lord. No, that's not what God's asking either. He's not asking for a decision for Christ. God is asking for every decision for Christ. He's Lord. Everything you do is done in submission to Him. Lord, do you want me to do this? Lord, should I wake up? Lord, should I go to bed? Lord, should I eat? You are in control. If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that every decision in your life is for Him. That's what puts you in the camp of an eternal lifer. Your life's been radically changed. You're no longer under your authority. You're no longer under Satan's authority. You are under the authority of Christ. He is Lord. And every decision you make, you make for Him. To live for Him. Those who are going to live with Him are those who make every decision for Him. That's what it means. A lifer confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, how do we do that? Let's move to the second one. A lifer knows and keeps the commands of God. Look at chapter 2, 3 and 4. Chapter 2, 3 and 4. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but for also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So, again, it's a nature that has been changed. He has satisfied, He's the propitiation for our sins. He has satisfied the wrath of God for us. He stood between us and God and taken God's wrath and anger due us. And that radically changes us 
to where we are so grateful to not be under the wrath of God and out from under the bondage of sin that we run to our God and say, how can we thank you? How can we please you? And God says, keep my commandments. You don't earn anything. You've already been granted as a gift faith in me, belief in me, you've turned from sin, you've run to me, as an act of love for me. These are the things that please me. And he gives us the Ten Commandments as love commands. And we've gone through those. We stopped in First John to go through those, that you would see them as love commands because they're such a big part of this book. That believers, lifers, eternal lifers, Embrace the commandments not as a means to um, creating righteousness, but as a way to please the one who is righteous in gratitude for the life that he's given us. So you know the commands. We memorized them as a congregation. You know where they are. If you're a guest, they're in Exodus 20. They're in Deuteronomy 5. And we have these commandments that God has given to us, and we embrace them as the way to Please him. So let's just take a practical example. Let's say uh, this week God offers you through his providence a new job. And you're trying to decide. Matter of fact, you've got two job offers. You're trying to decide which one God wants you to do. He is Lord. God, lead me. You're my Lord. Where do you want me to go? Maybe neither job. Maybe you want me to stay where I am. And so you work through the Ten Commandments because those are the ways to please God. So the first commandment, you say, God, this new job officer offer, does it allow me to worship you and to adore you and to be grateful to you? Or does it enable me to still have you alone as my only true God? Second command, does it enable me not to create images of you that are false, but allows me to stay pure in my thoughts, my mind, my living for you, not trying to live you the way I please or someone else pleases, but the way you please. Third commandment, does it not require me to have profanity in such a way as to bring down the name of Christ or the name of his people? Does it allow me to speak holy and righteous words and thoughts? Fourth commandment, does it take me away from the Sabbath day or does it allow me to keep one day out of seven the Lord's day set apart, set apart for the Lord and His worship with His people. Fifth commandment, how about honor? Mom and dad, honor authority. Is this a job that makes me think about the chain of command? Do they respect chain of command? Do they respect authority in this place? Authority that God has put in place, established with our parents, and then flows to other area of business. The sixth command, does this job preserve life? Is it serious about the, the life that God has created and sees that men and women and boys and girls are made in the image of God? Seventh command, is this a job that will enable my marriage to stay holy and right and pure and keep me from having to constantly deal with temptations towards adultery? Or fornication or something else. 
eighth command, is this a job that will pay well enough? I'm not constantly tempted to steal other people's private property, or is this a job that's sufficient? Ninth commandment, will this job in eight want me or encourage me to lie, deceive, be a deceiver? Or is this a job that is uh, concerned of the truth? And tenth commandment, is this a job that makes me envious of the next job and covetous? Or is this a job where I can stay and I can be faithful and I can be a long-term producer in this company? You see, as you work through the commands as a grid that God has given us to, to focus us and to please Him, God is pleased. He says, here is my child. Look how he works to love and to adore. He is a lifer. He knows the commands. He knows how to use them. They direct his going out and his coming in. You see, all eight of these that I'm going to share with you, you begin to see, if you understand them the way I'm sharing them with you, you understand no non-believer does these things. They don't have this as their nature to work through the commands as a, as a, as a rule to please they might work through some as a tool to try to earn. But we don't work through them that way. God's already earned our salvation in Christ. We, we work through them to please Him. No non-Christian does that. And no non-Christian treats every decision for Christ. This is when you realize, hey, I have these things. You have the characteristics of those who have eternal life. Let's look at number three. A lifer is one who embraces the values of God. Chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Interesting passage. Do not love the world. Just right there, stop. Y'all remember John three sixteen, right? What does it say? God so loved the world. And now he's telling you, don't love the world. What? You know, and, and we're looking at this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, I thought God loved the world. The love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, he's a lifer. He's a lifer. He's going to have eternal life. He's going to abide forever with God. What is God asking us to do? He's asking us to embrace His values and not the values of the world. He clearly is talking about... I'm not talking about love the world physically or love the world, the people of the world. I'm talking about the values in the world. I don't want you to, to love these, this passion the non-lifer has for the flesh, to please himself constantly instead of to please me. He's not going to heaven. We, we, are, we have a completely different value system in Christ. We are those who are understanding we're going to heaven, which means our time on earth is what? It's temporary. 
is passing through. Patty and I are going to a hotel tomorrow for a few days this week to celebrate our anniversary. If I get to the hotel and the faucet in the bathroom is leaking, I'm a do-it-yourselfer, fixer kind of guy. Will I stop and fix that faucet for them? Probably not. She's saying yes. No. I'm not going to do it. Why? Because I'm temporary. I'm just passing through. It's not my faucet. It's not my home. I don't have to worry with it. That's somebody else's troubles. The same thing in life. Do we fix up our home as though we're going to stay there forever? Or do we realize, no, this is temporary. I'm just passing through. There's things I don't do on earth because I'm just passing through. This is not my home. Heaven is my home. If I had to choose today from my home here or my home in heaven, I'm going home. Heaven is my home. That's where life is clearly eternal. That's where this frail physical body gets a glorified body. And we get to dwell in the presence of God forever. He says, embrace the values of God. And what are some of those values? They're eternal values. Do you invest in eternal values? What's eternal? This is eternal. The Word of God stands forever. Flowers fade, but the Word of God is eternal. You and me, we're eternal. We either live forever in heaven or in hell. We're eternal beings. What organization do you know that God says is eternal? There's only one. It's the church. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I can invest in the church and it, it's worthy. It's, it lasts. And so, so we give as a tribute to God. We give as an honor to God. We give in congratulations, in thanksgiving to God for our salvation. We bring our tribute to the king. We call that a tithe. But we also give above and beyond our offerings because we want to build what is eternal. And Christ is building His church here and in heaven. And we look forward to that eternal body around the throne. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue gathered in this eternal state with Christ. We invest in that. That matters to us. So many other things do not matter. Because they're temporary. We don't need to fix them. We don't need to worry over them. Don't need to spend a lot of time on them. You notice people with this eternal value system. Do you have it? Are you an eternal lifer? Have you become one whose nature has changed and your eyes have been opened and you see all the way back to Adam and Eve and you see all the way into heaven and its glories? And you embrace that. That's my home. That's where I belong. That's who I am. 
I'm a person with an expanded view of what's eternal and what really matters. I give myself to it. I'd live for it. Number four, let's move on. A lifer has an anointing, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. I'm not looking at all the passages, just don't have time for it. Chapter 2, verse 20 says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Then, then verse 27 lets us know what that anointing results in. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. So it's not just sprinkling water on top. It's something that comes into us and it's in us. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. We have this anointing that's in us. And I won't take the time, but go to John 14, 15, 16, probably the biggest section on the Holy Spirit uh, in the New Testament. And it's the Holy Spirit that Christ has given to us as our helper. And He dwells in us. And the Holy Spirit teaches us. And He directs us. And the non-Christian, again, does not have the possession of the Spirit. We looked... Uh, a week or so ago at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, because of the Holy Spirit, when we read the Bible, it comes to life for us. We see what the non-Christian can't see because the Holy Spirit is convincing us and convicting us of the truth of the Scriptures. It's a spiritual thing that the Spirit within us says, that's true, believe it. And very simply put, we're, we're like sheep with a shepherd. And the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. Why? Because the shepherd's put his voice in us. The shepherd knows his own voice. And the shepherd says to us, that's, that's me speaking to you. Listen. Listen. This is an anointing of the Spirit of God. What a blessing. We carry it with us. Wherever we go, day or night, God is with us. He's given us His Spirit. He's anointed us. He's blessed us with His presence that constantly is convicting us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, that's showing us the way to go, that's leading us back to the commands and uh, all that matters to God. We hear His voice. Do you hear him? You hear him if you're his sheep. I'm his. He's mine. And he's put his spirit within me. And he won't send his spirit to hell. I'm not going to hell. I'm going where he is. Because I have his spirit. Have confidence of eternal life. Of being where God is because God is where we are. Number five, let's move on. A lifer overcomes the world. Chapter five, verses four and five. Chapter five, verse four. 
For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you remember back when we were going through this passage verse by verse, I shared with you that the word overcomer here in the Greek, it's, it's the very popular word we have in English. We've translated and transliterated. It's, it's the word Nike. And Nike's even been used by our military to name certain missiles that are rightly named as overcomers. They can travel from here to commerce and blow up commerce in 90 seconds. That's a missile. Maybe we should launch it to all the shopping centers in America, you know. I wouldn't have to worry about shopping on my anniversary trip, right? There we go. But anyway, we're like that. We are overcomers. We have victory. We have we are conquerors. John 16, Jesus says, don't, don't fear, don't worry. I have overcome the world. You're going to face trouble, but I have overcome it. And then Romans 8.37, he says, You who are in Christ, you are more than conquerors. Hooper, nakao. In English, super overcomers. Super Nikes. That's what we are in Christ. Now, let's put that in more relative terms. We got a recovery mission we gladly love to support here. And some of you have been in it and through it. If, if you're recovering from some sort of addiction... So you've recovered from alcohol addiction, drug addiction, porn addiction, something. Everybody who's had to walk that path, they say, well, I've gone 30 days. I've gone 60 days. I've gone 90 days without falling back. I've gone 180 days. Maybe I've gone 365 days. Depending on the addiction, depending on you, your makeup and all of that. They're looking for that point where they have confidence. They may sin. They may fall into sin, yes. But they're not falling back into that habit. They're looking for that point where they can say with confidence, I am now to the place where I am beyond defeat. That's a super overcomer. I can sin, but I am beyond defeat. I am overwhelmingly conqueror of this addiction. And God says, that's what I've made you in Christ. You overcome the world. You overcome sin. You don't practice it like you once did. Yes, you still sin. Yes, you're still imperfect. But you've gotten to the place that you are beyond defeat because Christ is your victor. Christ is your victory. In Christ, you are an overcomer. What a freeing place that is to be beyond possibility of returning 
to the pits of hell. It's off the table. Because of Christ's death and life for us, hell is off the table. We will overcome. We have victory in Christ. We talked about, I don't have time, some of the things we overcome. We overcome deception. We now know truth. We overcome death. Yes, already talked about it. We overcome demons. We're not demon-possessed. We're possessed by His Spirit. We are super overcomers in Christ. The world doesn't know that. That is unique to the family of God. To already know we have the victories. Well, let's move on. Number six, a lifer purifies his life. Chapter three, verses two and three. A lifer, eternal lifer. Verse two, beloved, we are, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, here's my point, purifies himself as he is pure. We have this passion now to be like Christ. We're going to see Christ. We're going to be like Christ. And our desire is to be like him now, to, to learn to hate what he hates and love what he loves. He loves righteousness. He hates sin. And so we have this passion to learn, Lord, give me a distaste for sin. Help me to see its worthlessness. And help me to abhor it and to run hard and fast after what's holy and right and pure and pleasing, what's like Christ. That's our passion. Um, that's what we want for our motives, our attitudes, our actions. It's peculiar to sons. If, if you are preparing for a trip, a vacation, or you're preparing for somebody to come over, what do you do? You fix things up, you clean things up, you dress up. You purify yourself for the trip. You purify yourself for the visit, for the entertainment, for the people you're going to be with. Knowing that we're going to heaven. Knowing that we're going to see Christ. We have that constant drive to get it right. To purify, to look more and act more and think more like Christ. That's, part, that's just our nature. That's what you do because you know you're going to be like him, a life for purifies. When I see him, I'm going to be made like him. I want to like that. I want to be pleased with that. I want to celebrate that. And we, God begins that process in us now. Number seven, a lifer does not continue in sin. Chapter three, how wonderful this was to, to work through this. Verse nine and ten, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. We spent time looking at how the practice of sin is destroyed in us who are in Christ. Yes, we still sin. I've already said it. Yes, we're still imperfect. But... The dominion of sin has been removed. 
The bondage of Satan has been removed. There is a radical breach between us and the powers of sin. We've stepped into a new world and we're away from that old world. So that now that we might try to dabble, we don't practice sin. And we're growing more and more in the righteousness of Christ and in the freedom that that provides us. Sin is just incompatible with the new nature that God has given us so that when we do sin, it breaks our heart and we, we begin to abhor it. And we cry out for mercy and grace and God enables us to confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9. And He's faithful when we confess our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, you've probably, any of you have had kids, you've told your kids from time to time, you know, you've cleaned them up, say, now don't get dirty, we're fixing to go somewhere, don't get dirty. What happens? They get dirty. At some point, as you grow, you don't get dirty again. You grow in Christ. And you say, that's not my practice anymore. I see whose I am. I see where I'm going. I see the value of walking like Christ walks. And there's a new practice for us. Again, you can, it says it's evident who are Christians and non-Christians. I hate it when people say, well, I don't, I, you know, somebody comes and asks me, David, will you pray for my Uncle Joe or whatever? I say, is Christian or non-Christian? Well, I don't, I don't know. I hope he is. It's evident who are Christians and non-Christians. You should know. If you don't know, you're not thinking in these categories. You're not evaluating. Are you an eternal lifer or not? It's evident. There's those who practice sin and those who do not. Those who do not, they're not perfect. They're not self-righteous. They have a new nature where they hate sin and they love the things of God. Does your Uncle Joe love the things of God? Uh, well, I can't say that he does. Does your Uncle Joe invest in the church of God, in the word of God? No, he doesn't. Well, okay, wait, we don't have to keep going through all eight. He's not a believer. These are things that distinguish between the people of God and those who are not. And we need to embrace them. They lead to our own assurance. That we have been radically changed by Christ. Move on. Uh, number eight. A lifer loves the church of God. I know, I know, I know that a lot of people disagree with me here. It seems like everybody I run into says, well, you know, you can be a Christian and never go to church. You can be a Christian and never care about the church. You can be a Christian and not support the church. Where do you get that? Where do you find that mindset in the Bible? Okay, just evaluate it with me. Let's look at a few passages here. 1 John 3, 14 through 23. 1 John 3, 14 through 23. Now, I know there are exceptions, but I'm talking about the general rule. 
1 John 3, verse 14. It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. You can insert true church. The brothers are the church because we love the church, the brothers. Whoever does not love who? Those brothers, the church, abides in death. Verse 23, and this is the commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Who's that? The church. We love the church, just as He commanded us. Chapter 4, verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother. Again, what's, who's the brother? The church. So anyone says, I love God and hates the church, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And one other verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him, the church. The church are those who are born again. If you love God, you love the church. So ask yourself, do you have a love for the church? Plenty of people do not. And plenty of people try to rationalize that they do not and it's okay. But God says liar. You're lying. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to the people around you. That's not the way it is. If I have purchased someone with my own blood and loved them and gave my life for them, you love them. They're precious. They're the ones I'm building as any, and an eternal home for them. They're the ones I intercede for day after day. I value them. Do not devalue what I value. Christ says, I came to build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. My church matters to me. If you have the love of God within you, it matters to you. You love the church. Yeah, you can be the thief on the cross and never go to church and still go to heaven. I get the exceptions. But those of us who are on earth begin to grow in our love for what Christ loves. He loves the church. Or he doesn't love you and me. We're the church. We're the people of God. And those who are the people of God. Love the church. Do we demonstrate it? How do we demonstrate it? So many ways. You love the church. You pray for the church. You give for the church. You spend time with the church. You invest in the church. You do Bible studies with the church. You do prayer time with the church. You do fellowship time with the church. You do meals with the church. There's so many ways you love the church. But more and more I've talked to you who are believers. You say, the church is my life. I get it. It's because you love God. That you love His people. And you want to give yourself to them. That's why I wanted to take time to do this message with you this morning. It's not my job. Nobody asked me to. 
most of you would have been fine if I'd have just checked off when I got to First John five. Into the check it off. Okay, we we did the whole book. Good check. Did your job. Great job, preacher. But that's not the passion that burns in my heart. I, I don't I don't ever wake up saying, God, just help me do my job. But I wake up, Lord, help me to love you. Help me to love your people. What is it your people need? I know what it's like to lay on the floor and wondering if I'm going to heaven or hell. I don't want that for anyone in this room. So, Lord, what can I do when I'm in a book that says, no, 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 that you have eternal life and that you won't perish? Lord, how can I convey that and love the church? And as I prayed that prayer and read through the book again, these eight things come off the page for me to share with you. And I want you to know them so that when you have a doubt, Lord, am am I going to die tonight and be with you? You can say, wait a minute. There's an eight-point sermon in here somewhere. Number one, I'm convinced. I have confessed you as my Lord and Savior. And I've not been trying to make a decision for you. I've been doing all I can to make every decision for you. I am subdued to your word, to your reign. I live for Jesus. Second, I have taken the time to know the commandments. And they're my guide. They're, my, they're, the, they're the lamp to my feet, the light to my path. And they help me to love you and please you. And so I work daily consistent with the Word of God, the commands of God. I embrace your values, not the values of the world. I'm not interested in the temporary. I now live for the eternal, for. I've been anointed. I have the Spirit of God within me right now when I'm facing death. And He will walk through the shadow of death with me. And he won't leave me. He's there. And he's not taking me to hell. The spirit returns. To the one who sent it. Into heaven. And that's where I'll be. I'm an overcomer. I have gotten gotten to the place. I am beyond defeat. Satan can not. Even touch me. And draw me back. Into the pits of hell. I'm beyond such defeat. Number six, my life has become pure. It's now clearly, holy means set apart for sacred purpose. My life is now set apart for a sacred purpose. If I die tonight, that purpose gets fruition. And I'm in glory. My life is not about continuing sin. It's moving on to holy, holy, holy. And it's moving on to be with the people of God from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Only people there are those married to Christ and surround His throne to give Him praise and love and adoration. Are you a lifer?
eternal lifer? Is that your life? If it's not your life, you need one thing. Receive Jesus Christ. Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. To those who receive Christ, John 1, 12, He gives the right to be the children of God. He gives you power and authority to be one of His so that you can die without doubt. If you have not received Christ, let me know. I'll be glad to pray with you. I'll be glad to give you whatever you need to get you there. My passion for you is that you don't have doubts about your eternal tomorrow, but that you're in Christ, receive Christ. He's your only hope. Let's pray together.